Welcome to this series of podcasts on the IOD's Commission on the Future of Inclusive Business, Harnessing Diverse Talent for Success. The Commission is examining the key barriers to the recruitment, retention and progression of individuals from underrepresented groups, with specific reference to disability, ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation. This series will discuss important themes that the Commission focuses on and aims to provide examples and guidance on building diverse and inclusive workplaces. Hello everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast, uh, which is part of our Future of Business series. Um, And today I'm joined by Julie Ashworth. Um, Hello, Julie. Um, Julie, you are Chair of IOD Edinburgh and Lothians and also Vice Chair of IOD Scotland. Um, and I know that you've thought a lot about the value of ED&I on boards. Um, so it's a real pleasure to be here with you today to talk about that. Thanks very much, Roger. And um, amongst other things that I do, I'm also the Scotland Lead for Women on Boards. So we're, we're constantly looking at how that morphs into organisations in, and looking at EDI, yes. Great. Uh, well, let me start off, I suppose, with quite a straightforward and fundamental question, which is why should boards take ED&I, so equity, diversity and inclusion, seriously? And, and is there a business case for ED&I? That's an interesting one, isn't it? But, but let's start, I suppose, by qualifying EDI. And I know at the Institute of Directors, we often talk about diversity and inclusion, but more generally, although you you opened there, Roger, and said um, equity, diversity and inclusion, it is usual for people to think about equality, diversity and inclusion. I think that's really important because equalities is a legal construct. And that's the same in in governance and, and in boards. And diversity and inclusion is very much more behaviour and culturally driven. So if we think about EDI or DNI in relation to boards, let's look first at what is it that a board is responsible for, which we all know is about conformance and performance, you know, that part where you look forward at the strategy. And that's the same whether you're in a listed company, a startup, a charity, the private, the public or the third sector. But what's common to all of those is that the board is made up of people, different numbers of people, but people. So who's around that board table does matter, not just in terms of that technical ability, but also the makeup of those people. So yes, I I guess diversity does matter to boards. And if you have got diversity around the table, it changes the way the board itself thinks. It makes it more innovative and in so many ways, much more smarter. And that's not just that's not just hearsay, if you like. That's really reinforced by research and numerous studies. Even if we go back right the way back to 2003, the University of Texas revealed how just racial diversity increased the financial performance of 177 banks that they looked at. And around the same time, the University of Maryland and Columbia, they had research looking at 1,500 S&P companies, um, the boards and the senior leadership team. And they found there was a correlation with 
all forms of diversity, not just women, and the amount that a board, a company spent on research and development. And that that does correlate with higher profits. And I'll give you one last one, which is the IMF, because they did a study of hundreds of thousands of European companies, both public and private, and found that organisations with more women in them, more women in senior roles, had significantly higher returns on assets. However, um, the same study by the IMF tells us that when you get to the number that's around 60% of women in leadership roles, then that advantage diminishes. So boards do need to think about overall diversity if they want to make progress, because any group of of any like-minded, that group think that we talk about scenario is in itself less profitable. And that's the beginnings of a business case for ED&I. And I I would say just just one more thing, Roger. Indeed, the business case for D&I is stronger than ever because for diverse companies, that likelihood of outperforming industry peers on profitability has increased over time while the penalties are getting steeper. So so you kind of see it as a premium. Um, Companies with more than 30% of women on their exec teams are likely to outperform those that only have 10% to 30%. And those companies in turn outperform those with fewer or no women execs. So it is a diversity premium, if you like. And I know research, again, right up to date by McKinsey, looks at that premium being 36% advantageous in a diverse board. But it's not all about profit. Um, You asked at the the beginning, why should boards take EDI seriously? Well, partly as well, because regulatory and review bodies recognise why we should take it seriously. The Code of Corporate Governance requires listed companies to comply or explain. And Hampton Alexander, as you know, recommended at least 30% of women onto boards. And in April this year, the PRA published principles stating that they would expect to see at least 40% of women on boards and one senior board member, such as maybe the independent or the CFO, to be female and at least one ethnic minority director. Of all the principles, weights principles are my favourites. Who'd have thought you have favourite principles? (laughs) They're written for larger private companies But they're applicable, I think, to all companies because what they amplify is that boards need to put purpose and leadership as a bit of a North Star. And it does look to your board composition and your direct responsibilities, but it does so in terms of characteristics of governance, i.e. it's saying it's not any longer enough for boards to deliver, but to report on how they deliver. And a huge part of that, of course, is the diversity of voices around the table. Yes. Well, it, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it, that having a diverse board is a real benefit to, to an organisation. But I guess having EDI within the boardroom is, is only the start. And the next step, of course, is for boards to embed EDI across their organisations. I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how they actually go about doing that. So I guess what you're saying is what's the role of boards in driving that change on on EDI? Yes. Does it have a role? Um, Well, I guess in simple terms, yes. Um, 
and not not just by way of compliance, we just spoke about regulators, but also for that improved performance. And that's whether that's on behalf of shareholders or all stakeholders. Go back to my favourite weights. He says a healthy culture is critical to the company's competitive advantage and is vital to the creation and protection of long-term value. And that, of course, is supported by the FRC, who note that a healthy culture protects and generates value. So, yeah, boards do have a, a, a role in driving that change. And we know that regulators as well have an interest in corporate culture and in DNI. If you reference some of the some of the times organisations don't get it right, so I was looking at the House of Commons report on Carillion and um, as well into the Thomas Cook collapse, and MPs found there was a lack of diversity, not only visible but cognitive, a lack of challenge and a poor culture around the board. So the role of boards in driving change is to measure what's important to it. So boards do measure what's important to them, and we will all be well aware of our own financial measures. Um, On larger boards, we do delegate some of that to statutory committees. But I'd ask you to think about how we, or how you know, and that's the key, isn't it? How you know on your board that you have a culture that is equitable, that is diverse and is inclusive. You'll probably know that you're complying with equalities, equalities legislation. But how is your board measuring that implementation of your EDI or DNI approach? And data here is vital, qualitative data as well as that quantitative data. So things like how do you measure the leadership that you're giving out, ensuring it is collaborative and open? And what about your clients, your customers, your suppliers? Are their values in line with your values? And how is tech working in your organisation? It's either enabling inclusion or it's actually getting in the way. And what are the working environment, particularly since post-COVID, um, is that what's, what's your vision and your own board behaviours? Now, personally, I'd like to see people and culture on every risk register and on every board agenda. Because... Diversity doesn't just happen much as we would like it to. It needs to be well thought out and included in all the policies and procedures. Policies and procedures need checks and balances. So it's absolutely not about giving those from underrepresented groups preferential treatment. It's about shifting your focus on the board. And you need to start at the top. You need to review your own board's composition and skills and understand where you need to change on your board. Um, inclusion needs to be invested in and we need to upskill into collaborative leadership. So get that data, check it and remove any blocks to diversity is what I would say is the role of the board in driving that change. Yes, and we often um, say that it's important for senior management to to live the values of the organisation. So in, in this case, to to be exemplars of, of EDI. But how important do you think it is for, for board members um, to, to lead through their own personal experiences and personal behaviour? Um, I think it is important. We've, we've all heard that saying that you can't be what you can't see. And that's broadly true. 
But the underlying sentiment here is about inclusion. If you're a minority, it's more difficult to have your thoughts, views and opinions heard. Um, I welcome the new FCA reporting requirements on diversity um, again in April this year, as it takes a much more intersectional approach, which was a, a key recommendation from the Hidden Truth report last year. However, when it embraces gender and ethnicity, it's not yet extending to other groups such as LGBTQ or disability groups. To actively be better leaders on boards, it's essential, first of all, to widen that talent pool. The World Economic Forum stresses that leaders on boards need to be critical thinkers, to have critical thinking skills to solve complex problems. And here's the nub, they need to be able to work collaboratively, work effectively and purposefully, and refreshing those skills every five years. So it's critical that board leadership skills are tested and flexed, but done so in an inclusive environment. Any board meeting of silence and compliance should be a warning. And underrepresented groups need to feel competent and they need to feel confident to disagree. Then they can bring their voice, their thoughts, their opinions and be heard. So one of the outturns of, of COVID is that our environment is not going to get any less volatile, uncertain, complex or ambiguous anytime soon. So our directors do need to lead by example. The, the issue here is that directors and leaders already role model all the time. We're already doing it. The question really is whether we're doing it intentionally or unintentionally, explicitly or implicitly. So I think how important is it for board members to, to role model open, openness? The role modelling is really, really important, but intentional role modelling. Role modelling the skills and attributes I've just mentioned is key to driving the culture of the boardroom. And the culture of the boardroom drives the culture of the organisation. So you do need to, in the boardroom, watch out for those what we call micro inequalities and search out the micro affiliations. That's absolutely key. And again, a question for you. Can you describe the current culture of your organisation? Um, can you measure your leadership effectiveness on your board? And do you know what example you are currently setting implicitly? Yes. Um, well, certainly the report that the IOD will be publishing on the 19th of October will have some tremendous examples, I think, from business leaders and board members about how to be very open about um, EDI priorities and, and, and actions. Um, but you, Julie, you mentioned the new FCA rules, which will apply to listed companies, um, about the need to be transparent, about um, diversity, and I'm sure you've heard about the new EU plans to introduce um, a quota of 40% of non-executive board members on EU uh, company boards. Um, I'm just wondering what you think the role is of these regulatory measures in enhancing ED&I, um, 
how important is regulation um, and how is important how important is the behavior of companies themselves in taking things forward okay so so that idea of quotas data collection protected characteristics etc is is really like saying let's talk complexity we hear a lot about quotas so it's one of those words that people associate with merit so let's just discuss, if I can for a moment, that, that what I would call the myth of merit. So merit is in the eye of the beholder. And to have a successful merit-based system, you need to have in place fair processes and a fully merit-based society, equal access to land opportunity education. We don't. Um, you have to be able to manage talent and ensure blockers are removed, opportunities enhanced. And all of that comes from um, Young's writing in 1958, a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy. And here he says, merit is training, connections and education. But notes that at that time, in 1958, only the elite had equal access to those things. And when we're talking about that, we, we now often use this thinking to talk about equity, which takes us right back to the beginning, rather than equality. So words are important. And in countries like in Europe, where there perhaps is more equity and different governance, quotas do often work. But here our governance has always been around comply or explain. So I would say it's more guidance. So a while ago, the initial rise of um, organisations like the 30% Club and the Scottish Government's direction of 50-50 by 2020 and that Hampton Alexander Review, amongst others, did shine a light on DNI, and now newer initiatives such as um, directing businesses to report on gender pay pay gaps increase the illumination, uh, in, increase the focus in those areas. So yes, I think it's helpful, but there isn't a magic bullet, and we have made progress. But there's there's so much more to do. Um, not necessarily quotas, but I do welcome the launch of the FTSE Women's Leaders Review, which build, builds on that work, which was started by the Hampton Alexander Review. And that um, advises us to adopt a 40-40-20 gender-balanced um, approach. And the Parker Review as well also points to progress in the FTSE 100 and, and turns its attention now to the, the 250. My question is, what about FTSE all share below the 350 when we talk about quotas? Why can't we get both groups progressing simultaneously? So if we look at the overall stats, um, female board members of the all share sit around 34%, which is actually 4% lower than the 350. And progress of ethnicity is just 5% on the 350. Um, I mean, yes, that, that's making progress, but chairs figures sit at only 16% across the all share, of which only 2%, that's five people, are of colour. And just, just a few more figures, the percentage of CEOs, and this is important because we, we look at quotas in an executive and a non-executive space, but the percentage of CEOs in the all share is 7% for gender and ethnicity. Not the, that's 18 people, not the same 18 individuals across both metrics. But overall, in the, the Hidden Truth report, we see some organisations that are leading and others that are lagging. And that 
that sits with our governance modelling of comply or explain. The spotlight is brighter if you sit in the FTSE 50 or the, the, the FTSE 100. Essentially, I think at the moment we've got a diversity divide, um, really. And earlier on, we, at the beginning of this question, we spoke about quotas and that mandated data collection. And I do think these figures point to the fact that they help support progress. They do shine a light on diversity, but we need to combine that with attention from the investment community and from regulators to brighten that illumination. But it still comes back to all organisations from SMEs, private companies listed, um, that we need to develop a pipeline so that we have diverse representation. And I think if we can get to a place where boards and the leadership of organisations are diverse and inclusive, then we begin to make progress because the, the diversity the diversity of boards is not equality of boards. And chairing, leading, being in the C-suite of inclusive organisations is harder, so much harder. And so we really do need to underpin that with those skills I talked about earlier around being able to, to collaborate. So if, if you look again at that FTSE All Share at the 350, the percentage of women employed on boards where there's a female chair is 45%. Where there's a male chair, it's 32%. So again, are we are we back to the we can't be what you can't see? Um, if you look at then at leadership teams, where organisations have a female CEO, 55% of the exec leadership team are female, and it falls to a shocking 14% where there is a male CEO. So it, it positively indicates that women support women where, where those women are within their sphere of influence. So I think we need to continue with regulation, um, with guidance, and possibly with quotas. Yes. Now, there is, of course, another uh, group of people who exert great influence over companies, uh, and that is shareholders. And you mentioned the investment community um, a little earlier on. Um, what function can investors and shareholders play in terms of taking this whole EDI agenda forward? Um, I do think that shareholders and stakeholders do take it seriously. And I think they continue to require organisations and boards to provide evidence. So the more we can push for good data collection, more visibility, then the more interest we will generate and the brighter the illumination, we will shine on diversity, equity and inclusion. Yes, indeed. And I think, you know, your, your point about gathering data and truly understanding what the situation is in your organisation as a kind of prerequisite um, for making further progress is, is a very important one. Um, well, Julie Ashworth, thank you so much for your time to, today. Um, we very much enjoyed listening to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Directors podcast. For more information on the work of the IOD, including that of the Future of Inclusive Business Commission, 
please visit our website at iod.com.